good afternoon. How wonderful it is to be here tonight, this afternoon. How wonderful it is to be here. How wonderful it is to know our awesome God. I want to think about this thought for a minute, a song that we sometimes sing. Our God is an awesome God. How wonderful it is to know that. Can you imagine what life would be like without knowing that? Can you imagine what life would be like without knowing the awesome God that we serve, the love that He has for us, the mercy that He extends, the grace that He shows? Can you imagine what it would be like? But there are many in the world today who live in that circumstance. Many in the world today who do not know our awesome God. And that brings terrible consequences, some of which we looked at this morning. Consequences of a world that doesn't know God. And that's one of the things that the psalmist speaks about as he gets into, uh, as we start reading into the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 9, you want to open your Bibles there, I think it's a good place to start this afternoon. As we consider this thought of the awesome knowledge of God, the, the psalmist is giving a, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of Praise for God's righteousness. And one of the things that David points out in Psalm 9, found in verse 17, highlights what a terrible consequence there is for people who, have, who don't know about God. He says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forgot God. That's a scary thought. The nations that have forgotten God have a terrible judgment reserved for them and in many ways, like we looked at this morning, it would seem that America can be lumped in with one of these nations. Maybe your translation just says the Gentiles. But the point of it is those people not belonging to God have forgotten Him. Forgotten what He has done. Well, well we might look at that and say, well, that's, that's terrible, that's bad. But what about His people that haven't forgotten Him? What about Christians? And you see, as I thought about this phrase, and I thought about, you know, has you know, America's slapped on their, their dollar in God we trust, but in many ways it seems like that has not been our emphasis uh, for the last long period of time. But does that really bother me as much as when I look to God's people and start to wonder the same thing? Do they trust? Do I trust in God? Or have we forgotten Him as well. Now you might begin to question and say, well, how can a Christian possibly forget about God? That doesn't seem to make sense since they spend so much time focusing on, on God and they gather together and worship Him and praise Him. How could Christians have forgotten about God? And I'm going to suggest that it's actually not that very difficult to happen. It's actually rather easy. Many times it's because of a case where people never really knew God to begin with, or maybe they did, but over time they allowed the relationships they, they have with the world, their own desires to draw them further and further away until rather than being in this close relationship with God, they're more of like a distant acquaintance that says, oh yeah, I remember him. I remember something about him. In fact, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God says, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. That is not intellectual knowledge that he's talking about here. They have an intellectual knowledge. There's still, there's still a, uh, a, a temple. There's a place for them to worship. There's, there are things that represent God around them. They say, oh yeah, we know who He is. But they have lost the knowledge of Him. The close personal relationship. The, the ties that hold them close to Him. And and relate with Him. And that is why time and study is so very important. 
Time studying personally. Time studying in a group. Sometimes you say it's important for you to read your Bible. and People say, ah, I don't need to do that. You're just, you just want to be able to memorize it and throw verses at me. And, and yes, yeah, some people treat Bible study that way. I'm going to know the thing front to back and I'm not really going to have a clue what it means, but I'm going to know it. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's not the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. I'm talking about studying the Word to gain a knowledge of the awesome God that we serve. That is important. Any other type of knowledge in this life pales in comparison to that. All other types of knowledge in this life have to do with just that, this life. But the knowledge of God has to do with the life that is to come. Whether that life that we live today be, be short or long, time spent growing in the knowledge of God is time spent preparing for eternity. And so this afternoon, we're going to look at three puzzle pieces. Three words that tell us a little bit about God. Each one of them painting more and more of a picture, more and more of a illustration of the awesome God that we serve. These three words that describe God, I want to give them to you at the beginning of this, and then we'll talk more about what each one of them means. The first one is the created word. The second is the written. And the third one is the living. What do these words detail to us? What do these words describe to us? Well, that's what we want to talk about this afternoon. Let's begin with the created word. If you're still in Psalm, turn over to Psalm 19. If you didn't flip away, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. And read with me what the psalmist David writes in Psalm 19. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. David is talking about the very creation around him, the things that he can see with his eye, the physical things that he can, he can smell and he can touch and he can experience. And he says, these things are saying something to me. And they're saying something to you. They're saying something about the God that, that created them. They are declaring His glory. And he says, there is not a place, there is not a language that has not heard their message. That makes me think of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul leans upon this same argument that the creation reveals the Creator and says that those who who did not have the advantages of the Israelites, they are without excuse. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and the Godhead, so that they are without excuse." These passages are discussing evidences of God. And not the evidences that we usually grow up trying to, to, to memorize and learn. We sing the song, Jesus loves me. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. And I'm going to go to everybody else and show them. This is how I know Jesus loves me. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being able to go to in the Bible and tell people, look, this, this is important. You need to listen to this. But what the psalmist and what, and what Paul is making the point here is before we even get there, we need to realize that God has spoken for Himself in His creation. He is trying to get the attention of His creation saying, look at me. Do you see that there's something going on here more than just everything is, is, is there? In fact, that mentality that just everything is there 
flies in the face of the very logic that we have and use on an every, everyday basis. We walk into our kitchen and we recognize that those cabinets didn't just make themselves. Cabinets demand a cabinet maker. You know, the other examples I'll oftentimes use watches. Watches demand watchmakers. That watch, you, you can't just take a, a handful of parts and throw them up in the air and, and, a, and a Rolex fall out of the air into your hand. That demands that somebody put that together. Now, sometimes when, when we start talking about that, what we're, we're really saying is what we see in creation is we see design. We see things that even down to the snowflake that says that didn't just happen by accident. And when we start arguing that, you might hear sometimes people turn around and say, well, there's also things in creation that don't seem to show any design. They are random. They are cataclysmic. They, 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 have, they just have no, no design whatsoever that anyone can distinguish from them. They are chaotic. Doesn't that disprove your whole point? And I would say no. I would say it does not. I recently heard somebody ask me, uh, use, the, use the, the illustration, I've heard it used in the past, I'm sure you all have as well. If you're walking down a, a, a road and on top of a fence post is a turtle laid upside down on the top of that fence post, you're going to think to yourself, who put you there? Nobody in their right mind is going to say, now how did that turtle climb up this fence post, get on top of the fence post and turn itself over on its back? Everyone is going to look at that turtle and say, somebody had to have set you there. Now he said, he asked me, he said, now listen, how many turtles on their backs on top of fence posts do you have to see before you start thinking somebody put them there? Is it like, you know, about the 500th one of those? You go, okay, this is a strange phenomenon that's happening here. But then when you see 501, okay, I think somebody's out here just picking turtles up out of the ground and sticking them on top of fence posts. He said, no, the very first one. The very first turtle that you come across, you say, there is no way on earth that thing got there by itself. Somebody had to have done that. The same thing is true in our creation. Our very laws of physics. The second law of thermodynamics says that things are not tending towards order, they're tending towards disorder. And the way that science proves that very point, which is very true, is that nobody was born and immediately became getting, getting better. Just the opposite. Our lives are moving towards our ultimate deaths. Things do not get created and just get better and better and better and better. They slowly start to fall apart. You can see that in every automobile that was ever made. They slowly start to fall apart. And so if that is what we base our science on, and it is proven to be a very true fact, then how many, how many evidences of design do we have to find to say something is going on here? We really just need one. Now I say that to say this, we have billions billions of evidences of design. One would be more than enough. We have billions. And what do we see in that design? We see that something with an intelligent mind had to have been behind this. We see that it was perfect. And I say perfect in the sense that over thousands of years, the design has not changed and man has based really, really difficult things off of that design. For example... You go down to Florida and you speak to the guys at NASA and say, how do you keep those satellites in the air? You know what they're going to say? It's based off of gravity. Based off of gravity. We send a rocket into space. We use just enough propulsion to get it outside of our, 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 uh, most of our gravitational pull, but not enough to get it too far away because we want it just in the right spot because we know gravity hasn't changed ever. 
And so we're just going to base ourselves off this perfect design that just magically happened to be here when we got here. No. Design demands that there be a designer. And the design that we see shows that the designer has to be incredibly smart. He has to be, he has to be powerful. You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And yes, at the end of the day, I remember a guy telling me once, he said, I went there, it was a hole in the ground. Yes, at the end of the day, it's a hole in the ground. But it is a hole in the ground unlike any hole in the ground I've ever, I've ever seen. I've always wanted to go be able to see it. I'm, I'm forced to look at it through Google Earth. And I'm still impressed. Design, the, the creation around us, it, it shows us wonderful attributes of the God that we serve. What about morality? The fact that we talked about this morning, that there is morality, that there are absolute truths. There are things, and whenever someone, just, just to, to, maybe you had this question or this thought this morning, I know I've thought it before. When you make that statement, you say there are absolute truths in the world, inevitably somebody's going to raise their hand and say there is not absolute truth. Do you realize that's an absolute truth to make that statement? To claim that there is no absolute truth is, by definition, an absolute truth. It is a self-defeating argument. Because the fact is, there is. And where did these absolute truths come from? Where did morality come from? We see that in every civilization, there has been, sometimes not always based on the exact same thing, but there has been a shared belief that some things are just wrong. Murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. And yes, there are times when the culture and the society cause people to completely flip their minds and do things that are terrible, that are just crimes against humanity. But over and over again, we see the general concept throughout history has been there is a sense of morality. Where did that come from? Did it just come from a bunch of chemicals that, that welled up in our brain? I'm going to tell you why I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's true because of dogs. We have a dog that has no sense of morals whatsoever. Now, she'll do what's right and she'll do what's wrong because I give her treats and I also punish her when she does what's wrong. So there is a reward and punishment system that's going on there. But throughout history, animals have showed they have never had the ability, as long as they've been able to, you know, supposedly we all come from the same place. How come we're the ones that develop the idea? When you, if you take the evolutionist viewpoint, how come we're the ones that developed into this sense of morality while animals will still kill one another and do all sorts of just things that we go, oh, that's animalistic, that's savage, that's wild. Is it because of just chemicals? No. Because we, we were designed with these morals built into us to, 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 to maybe show that at some point we came with an image that was created into us? Doesn't the Bible even say something about that? Yes, I believe it does. We have morality. What I want us to see then is God created. If God created everything that we're talking about, if God created the, the physical world, if God created you and me, if God put these things into us, what does that say about our God? I'll tell you, it says that He is incredibly powerful. It says that He is supremely intelligent. He is wise, He is perfect in knowledge, He is moral. It tells us great things about Him, but you know what? It doesn't tell us enough. Because knowing the created does not equal knowing God. It leaves us without excuse. That's what we read in Romans. That's the argument Paul made. They are without excuse. 
But just because we have creation doesn't mean that we know God. That's proven just by looking around at the world. But also you can see that in Scripture as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 21, when Paul is talking to people who had the creation and they had, they had worldly wisdom. These are not stupid people. Listen to what he says in verses 18 through 21. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The wise of this world looked at the message of the cross, looked at the God they was trying to describe, and looked. they had the world, they had the creation all around them. In fact, when we go back and we look at the things that these people believed, they were making beliefs based off of what they observed in creation. But they didn't come to know God. Because knowing creation just is not, it simply is not enough. There are many people the world over that, that like to point to that. They might claim, I know God because I, you know what, I had a, a really good friend who used to tell me, I know God because I can see him in that tree. I'd say, where? Where's he at? He said, I can see him in that tree and I see that tree and I see God. And so I know God exists and that, that means I believe God and that tells me I'm saved. I don't have anything to worry about. All from a pine tree. Knowing the created can't equal fully knowing God. Because you can't know the personality of God. And that's very important for us to understand that God is personal. This does not mean that God is a personal Savior that saves you different than how He saves anybody else. But He is personal. He has personality. He has revealed Himself in that way. Sometimes the illustration I like to use to show that is is any form of tech. I've used a stylus before. We'll use this, this clicker uh, thing here that advances our slides. I can tell by studying this that the Creator is a lot smarter than I am. Whoever made this thing knows something about electronics and circuits that I don't even have a, a chance in pretending like I know how to do. I don't know how a laser works to save my life. I know that there's lights in there and I know that there's, there, there, there's crystals, but I, to me, that could, you could just say that's magic and I would say, okay, that sounds good, but it works. This person knows a lot more about this than me. This person also has a desire, I can tell from this, to in some way help a presenter out, help someone who is trying to speak to be able to advance their slides. And so I can even assume then that they probably care for people who are listening to that presenter to be able to follow along with them. But I don't have a clue if it was a male or a female. I don't have a clue if they, uh, if they did this because they love people or if they did this because they love money. I have no idea. There's only so many conclusions that I can come to before I need more information. And the same is true in God's creation. We can come to learn a lot of things. We can draw solid conclusions about God, but we can only go so far before we need more. And thus God gave us more. He gave us the written word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says God's word is inspired. The, 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 the Holy Scriptures are the, the words that God breathed out. They were written by men, but they were written with the, with, with the inspiration of God that they would be used to teach, that they would be used to rebuke, that they would be used to admonish. They're profitable for training and correction. This goes beyond what nature tells us. 
Nature brings us so far, but God's Word continues the journey so we can understand more about God. Some of the things we understand is that, and through studying His Word, that God was involved with mankind. Now I tell you, why on earth does the God that, that I don't know, scooped out the Grand Canyon, whatever we're going to call it, why does that God care to, to deal with me? Why does He ever step into His society, to this, this creation? Why does He have to lower Himself to become involved in my life? Because nature, nature doesn't prove that. Nature doesn't show that at all. God's Word shows that He interacted with us, that He talked with us and walked with us, that He loves us. And we see that through the accounts of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel. You see that immensely with the picture of Israel. He gives Israel the Ten Commandments. He gives Israel law. And you think to yourself, well, that doesn't seem like a very... How does that show that He loves us? How does that show that He just is meddling in our affairs? Well, I go back to the person that created this. And they say, here is a law for how you can make your own clicker. I say, well, I don't think that's meddling in my life at all. I appreciate the great information that you've given us. Now, the information that God reveals, the law that He gives goes a step further because it's coming from this perfect designer it's coming from a morale and, and personal God. It's coming from a supremely intelligent God. And it's coming with a purpose. And we'll get to that in a second. But what we see is He's given His law for them to follow. And then He's also, also offered protection for them whenever they are doing that. Very much so, you see this picture of, of something that would happen in, in the early days of, uh, of history where one kingdom would come into another and they say, Look, you're going to belong to us. We're not conquering you. We're giving you the opportunity. You follow our laws. You respect the kingship of our king. And you are considered as a part of our kingdom. And we will protect you. And we will guard you. And if somebody messes with you, they mess with us. And our blessings are your blessings. And you're just like a part of our family. Let's call it a suzerainty. We see that in the way that God treats Israel. He goes to a nation that doesn't deserve His protection. Doesn't deserve... His law doesn't deserve His blessings. And He says, look, you're going to belong to Me. You're going to be a part of My family. And you're going to have My protection and My blessings. But if you're not going to be a part of that, if you just say, nope, nope, we want to do it on our own and walk our own way, that's fine. But there's curses that come with that. There is punishment that comes with that. God is setting up that He loves them. He wants what's best for them. And He's actually trying to protect them from a very real judgment that's coming. When we study His written Word, we see aspects of God that are just not made evident in nature. God loves man. That is being very abundantly and clearly made throughout Scripture. God is patient with man. That is seen incredibly abundantly clear in just the picture of Moses. We talked about Wednesday night. God had every right to just say, you know what, Moses, I'm done with this. I'm going to find somebody else. Especially with the children of Israel. But you know, as we also study through there, we see that God is also wrathful. And God is willing to punish those who are disobedient. He is jealous. And He has every right to be. But He is also full of righteousness and mercy and grace. All of this evident, not in nature, but in His involvement with man. And that's recordings. The recording of that in His Word. We also see beyond just being involved that He also has a purpose. And I think this gets at the heart why a lot of times we decide... I don't think I want to accept that there is a God because that God has a purpose for me. In Leviticus 11, 44 through 45, Leviticus 19, 2, and 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16, he says the same phrase. 
Be holy, for I am holy. Be sacred, for I am sacred. Be sanctified, for I am sanctified. Be set apart, for I am set apart. You can replace holy with any of these words that you want to replace them with. They're all teaching the same thing, that God is the only God. He is the one true God. He is different than everything else, and His people need to be different too. And that's what He's calling them to. I have a purpose. That purpose is that this people will be different. They will stand out. And I say that's probably one reason why people don't like to believe and then furthermore act like there is a God. Because if God is personal and God is caring and God has a will for them, well, doesn't that mean that I'll be accountable to Him as well? And if all we had was the created Word, if all we had was nature, we would, have, we would not have this personal knowledge of God. And so sometimes the easiest thing is, well, let's just let's get rid of the written Word. Solves that problem, we're done. Slide that out of here while we got nature again and everything is fine. And when that happens... God turns into just simply a point of argument, and that's it. All He is is something for people to fight about. What's God like? I don't know. What do you think He's like? I don't know. What's He want? I don't know. What should I do? Whatever you want. Which is exactly where we are today. These are the consequences of poor knowledge of God. The reason I say that is because it's the knowledge of who He is that drives us to seek Him out. It's the knowledge of what He has done that prompts us to obedience. And we need to understand that. I thank God that He is personal. I thank God that He has given us His holy, inspired, and written Word. But what that means is I also have to recognize He has a will for us. And He's going to hold us accountable to that will. I always think as I, along these lines when I'm contemplating this thought, I worked with a guy and I always thought, how is it so easy for people to, to believe in aliens from outer space just like that? You tell someone, there was, there was an alien sighting last night. I believe it. Oh, I believe it. They're out there. They're, they're, they're all around the world. They're landing here. They're landing there. Believe that all day long. I believe that there is a, a holy and, and benevolent God that created the world, has a desire for your well-being, loves you, wants you to come to Him, and is going to judge the world in His wrath. I don't buy that. Let's go back to aliens. Let's talk about them. Why is that? Why are aliens so much easier to believe in than God? I believe it's because believing in aliens has absolutely no bearing on your life whatsoever. I can believe in aliens or not believe in aliens all day long. It's not going to change anything other than maybe the way people think about me. But that's it. That's going to be it. That's all. Aliens have never revealed themselves in any way to show that they have a will for you, that they have a plan for you, that they have desires for you. No. No relationships. No purpose. But God. God to believe in Him is more than just to believe that He exists the way that some claim about aliens. No, it goes beyond that. He has not left us that right. He's not left us that freedom. We either choose to believe that He exists and that He has a plan and a purpose for us and we will be in subjection to that or we will be in rebellion to that. Those are really our two choices. If we are going to believe that He exists, it prompts us to step a step further down this path. And what we find is he, he has a knowledge, that he, or He has given us a knowledge to know that He had not only created us, He expects holiness of us, and He's going to hold us to accountability. Believing in God means that. 
Believing in God means from now on, I have to live my life. I must live my life looking through the lens of that reality that there is a God that loves me, that has left a will, a purpose for me, and that is going to hold me accountable to that purpose. But that leads us to a problem. And that problem is, be holy for I am holy. Because if we're viewing all of this through the lens of that reality, it focuses us back down again and again and again. You ever seen these pictures of a big lens and they, they focus light down to a beam? And you know, kids, you, you all probably see this with magnifying lenses as you chase ants around the parking lot. That's that lens of this reality. It focuses down to a beam and the spot of that beam, it just lands right here every single time. How are we supposed to do that? How am I supposed to be holy like the God of this creation, the God of this Word? How am I supposed to be holy like that? That's impossible. God, you had no idea what you were saying when you said that. You've never lived down here. You've never dealt with the things that we've dealt with. That is impossible for us to do. It would be a perfectly fine statement if we did not have the living Word. You see, God has lived where we are. God has shown us what it looks like for a man. Yes, Jesus said, well, Jesus was God. He was God. He was 100% God. And He was 100% man. And He has shown us what it looks like for a man to come into this world and be holy as He is holy. In John chapter 1, verses 1-3 through and verse 14, John's Gospel rips the pages of the Bible open with the same phrase that's made in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John unapologetically takes God to his readers and shoves Him in their face and says, you need to see this. God was in the beginning, and the Word was with Him. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And so He is bringing to their forefront this Word that was with God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as He continues on, verse 17 says, that Word was Jesus. And probably one of my favorite verses of the entire Bible. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father... He has declared, or maybe you have, He has explained Him. Who's explained who? When we follow the structure of that sentence, it's the Son. The Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared or explained God. Jesus explains Him to us. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Because as scientists, when they're studying something, they say, well, we've we got to be able to observe it. We wanted to know more about how gorillas behaved in the wild. We say, all right, we need somehow to watch them, to observe them. Whenever we want to know more about a dangerous disease and how it reacts in somebody's body, we say, let's do some testing. Let's, let's figure out what this looks like so we can watch it and observe it. As we read through the Bible, the written word reveals God is spirit. Well, how on earth do we observe that? How do we observe God who is spirit? Well, in John chapter 14 and verse 9, in John 14 and verse 9, that's the question that Philip asks. He says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you been with me this long? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What did he mean by that? 
What he meant by that is we can observe God and we can study His qualities which make up His character by observing and looking at Jesus, such as in His life. Throughout the life of Christ, we see the holiness of God. Remember that phrase, be holy for I am holy. We see that throughout Jesus who is perfect and sinless and He displayed God's purity and His righteousness and His goodness. But also we observe His death. Even in His death, we see the wrath of God being poured out because God's righteousness demands that sin be punished. This is the reason for Jesus coming to the cross to bear the sins of the world. And He takes them before a judge who is looking down at His sinless Son And He takes the punishment that I deserve, that we deserve, and He pours it out on His Son for the hope that we might, we might look at that and study it. That we might observe what's going on. We're so busy walking around like this right here, and whether it be a phone, uh, a, a job, a hobby, everything, our eyes are planted in the wrong spot. We do need to be looking at the world around us. We need to be looking into nature. We need to be looking into the creation. We need to be looking into God's Word. We need to be looking at Jesus. We need to be looking at Jesus and seeing the beautiful pictures of God that are portrayed. And in His death is a terrifying picture of wrath. But also we see in His resurrection a a terribly wonderful picture of faith. Over in Acts chapter 2, I want you to consider this for a minute. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is explaining to these Jews uh, during this this, this first sermon on Pentecost what God has done. And consider what he says in verse 29. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Peter is saying, God made a promise to David. And David has long been dead. And that didn't even slow God down. He still kept that promise. Even raising up his son physically from the grave. That's how sincere the promises of God are. That's how powerful the faithfulness of God is. In fact, there's not a promise made throughout all of time that God, if it was unconditional, didn't keep. He kept every single one of them. And even the ones that were conditional, the ones that depended upon man, if man kept up his end, God always kept up his end as well. Every time and always, God is shown as faithful. So in Christ Jesus... We see all of these properties of God. In Jesus, we see God's holiness, His goodness, His truthfulness. We see His wrath and His righteousness. We see His mercy and His grace and His patience and His faithfulness. All of that seen in Jesus. This afternoon, what I'm hoping to drive home is that God has given everyone, He has given everyone every opportunity to know who He is. He has shown us in His creation. He has shown us in His Word. He has shown us in His Son. And so having looked at all of that, we come back to our original question. How can someone forget about God? How can that happen? Well, to answer that question, I would just like to ask four different questions. And I will leave these questions for you to ponder on your own. 
and for you to answer for yourself. And having done that, the lesson will be yours. Number one is, how can we fail to love God? He has shown how He created us. He has shown how He involves Himself in our lives. And I don't mean, I don't mean the way that I involve myself whenever the boys are playing a sport or they're, you know, Ryder shoots archery and Madden's played basketball. You know, I'm standing over here on the sidelines, keep it up, doing a good job. You know, I'm cheering for them. That's not the way that God involves Himself in our lives. God got tangled up in our lives. God immersed Himself in our lives, in our filthy lives that He had created righteous and we had just piled sin upon. He didn't just sporadically check in on us. He dug into our lives and even gave His own Son to die for us and for our sins. Now that's love. How can we fail not to get that involved with Him? Not to get tangled up in Him. Not to sacrifice our own lives, our wants, our desires. How not to give it all up for Him. How can we fail? How can we fail to love God? How can we fail to worship Him? You know, Alan has led us in song this afternoon. And in doing so, we have offered up praises to God. We have given the fruit of our lips to our Creator and Sustainer. Can we ever get enough of that? Can we ever come to a point in our lives where we say, this most powerful, super intelligent being who has perfectly designed me and everything that I can see in this world with the intention that it worship Him? In fact, the rest of His creation does. Night unto night, day unto day, their voices are heard singing the glory of God. Can I ever then say, that you know what, I'm just not interested in doing that today. I've had enough of that this week. I, I think I'm good. How can we fail to fear Him? Now this one seems to be kind of contradictory to the first one with love Him. How, if, I, if I love Him, how can I fear Him? And obviously that is a misunderstanding. That is the wrong kind of fear. We need a loving fear of the Lord, a reverence of the Lord. We try to raise our boys. In fact, I, I asked him on the way here. I said, boys, if, we'd never, if we had never told you to obey us, would you do it? If God's Word had never said obey your parents, would you do it? And all of them kind of, this is a trick question. Um, I don't know how to answer. Except for Madden. He says, yep. And I say, why? He goes, because you all love us. That is the reason that we fear God. Because He loves us. Because He has loved us so much. Yes, I have a fear of eternal damnation. That's, that, that scares me and that that presses me forward. I have a desire for a reward to be with Him forever, but I cannot study His Word. I cannot spend time learning about what He has done. I cannot look at the world around me. I cannot spend time with Christ and step away from it and say, you know what, the only reason I'm doing this is to keep me from hell. He has loved us so much. How can we fail to fear Him and reverence Him and obey Him? We see Him everywhere. In His creation, in His Word, through His Son, we discover that He has knowledge that has been given to us. And in that knowledge, we find a plan. A plan for you and a plan for me. And how can we not obey His will? In fact, that's probably the hardest thing for me to understand. It's not how the world gets themselves into the situations they're in. It's how do Christians 
How do people who belong to God, who claim to believe Him, who claim to love Him, who claim to know Him, how do they not obey Him? If we truly knew God, we wouldn't question for a second the worthiness of following His commands, no matter how hard they might be. So like I said, these four questions, when the lesson is yours, I hope that you've spent this time truly inquiring of yourselves, do I really know God? Do I really? We've taken a first step in getting to know Him by looking at, looking at the ways that He's been revealed to us. But you know, we can take a step further and we can begin to know Him better, doing an extension of the things that we've already looked about by taking time in His creation. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to have this, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to go kayaking with some, some members of the church. We're going to spend some time on the Kentucky River. We're going to camp down by Shakertown. And I just can't wait because we're going to go through the Palisades. That's an awesome, awesome, mini Grand Canyon looking picture of God's creation. I can't wait to just look at that and just to bask in the glory of God's creation. I encourage you to take time as well. Look at the world around you. Grow in your knowledge and in your understanding of what God has done and who God is. More importantly than that, get out a pen and a piece of paper and dig into His Word and start jotting thoughts down. Study it and learn from it and commit it to memory. Again, that's not the type of knowledge we're talking about, but in Psalm 119, listen to what the psalmist says in verse 11, Your Word I have treasured or stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. He recognized the value that, yes, this isn't the knowledge that makes me righteous, but it sure helps me to make sure that I'm not walking in an unholy way. I won't be able to say, well, I didn't know that. Let's spend time studying His Word and let's study Jesus. Let's find the qualities of God and let's seek to make those qualities ours as well. If we can help you this afternoon to come to Him through obedience, become a child of God, what I would do is I would ask you, do you know God? Or would you like to know Him better? Maybe you've already made those steps and you realize and say, you know what? I did know God, but I have certainly let that knowledge go to the wayside for the ways of this world. For that I would say repent and draw back to Him. And as we studied this morning, He is ready to bring you back in. And if we can help you in any way in, those, in that, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.